The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Hello and welcome to The Views Room, brought to you from the staff of Breaking Views. I'm Jennifer Saba, and with me is Anna Shemansky. Hey, Anna. Hello. Later in the program, Anna and I are going to take you down a surreal path involving Venezuela, its leaders who may or may not be the leader of the country. <laughs> it's kind of confusing. And its state oil company. But first, we're going to hop on the line with our colleague in Europe to chat about LVMH's $15 billion offer for Tiffany & Co. And do stick around to hear this really cool story about the world's most expensive chocolatier. The owner of Christian Dior is making a bid for the iconic Tiffany & Co. About $15 billion is the offer on the table. We have Lisa Yuka calling in from Milan. Hi, Lisa. Welcome to the program. And we hope you can tell us what is going on with this deal. Hi. So Bernardo knows bid for Tiffany it is really um, a deal to dream of. Um, the the brand, which was made famous by Audrey Hepman in Breakfast at Tiffany, um, is, is one of the few publicly listed companies in the luxury goods universe. I mean, most companies, as you know, are family owned or uh, have, you know, uh, the the entrepreneur, the founder as a key still stakeholder. Um, so it's very rare to, to, to find a, a target on the market. And Tiffany is one of those and, and quite a large one. And this was relatively expected from LVMH, right? Because they have so much cash that's built up on their balance sheet. So I wrote a view actually um, a few months back saying that uh, LVMH could indeed consider Tiffany as a target. I mean, this is a a company which is worth over $200 billion on the market and has a potential firepower of, let's say, 40 billion euros. So it's really a giant in the luxury goods world. There are really sort of far ahead. I mean, their their sort of closest rivals are Richemont and Caring, but, you know, less than half the size. I mean, you also have Hermès, obviously, I mean, the maker of the famous Birkin bag, uh, which is, you know, quite large, but, you know, a portfolio which is unmatched, if you want, you know, from, from wines, precious champagne to uh, obviously Dior, the Louis Vuitton brand, I mean, to cosmetics. I mean, no one really has such a breath. Um, However, um, LVMH was maybe a little bit weak in the so-called hard luxury segment, which includes jewels. So that's why they're pouncing on Tiffany. And what do you think about the price that's on offer? So this... um, price, $120 per share, uh, represents an, a 22% premium on Friday's um, closing share price. So this is not a, an extravagant premium uh, in, in the luxury goods world because uh, there, there are very few targets, as I was saying. Uh, often premiums are much larger and LVMH itself paid 60% in premium to take home Bulgari uh, eight years ago, which was their main jewellery acquisition uh, up until now. So you could say that this is not too large. Uh, Of course, you know, Tiffany is not necessarily cheap on the market, but uh, LVMH has such a large balance sheet that they could go higher if they wanted to, without really denting, you know, the, the, the sort of debt situation. 
too much. And, and what and what has Tiffany's response been so far? To, to so the so offer? far, they've just said that they want to evaluate the offer. They haven't sort of rejected it outright, but they haven't accepted it either. So they're thinking about it now. The issue is, can the CEO, um, Alessandro Vogliolo, can, can he really argue with investors for Tiffany to stay independent? I mean, that, that's, that's the main thing. You know, he, he basically has an all-cash offer on one side, maybe $120 per share, maybe a little bit more. You know, he could argue for more. But, you know, the alternative is to promise quick growth that can somehow bring the shares to that level you know, very rapidly. And, you know, it may be difficult for him to argue that. And is there any potential for competitive bids or does it seem like there's really just one main potential buyer out there? So this is the type of deal that is going to reshape the luxury goods landscape. So, of course, immediate rivals, in particular Caring and Richmond, are watching. Uh, I mean, it, it is possible. I mean, I'm not sort of ruling out completely the possibility of a move, of a counter bid, if only to make it more expensive, if you want, for LVMH to, to, to buy Tiffany. But I kind of expect Tif, uh, LVMH, you know, to be able to sort of emerge as the winner, ultimately, just because of their might. Um, and Lisa, one last question before we let you go. I mean, does... Is, is Tiffany's kind of a good business in general? I mean, is the hard goods that you were talking about earlier, are people buying watches and diamonds and whatnot? Um, like, where, where do they, how is that going? Yeah, so Tiffany is in the so-called branded jewelry space. They don't really, I mean, the, the watches is not their sort of core segment. You know, it's more sort of bracelet diamonds and, and mm-hmm. rings. Um, I mean, this is, the branded jewelry is a segment which is expanded rapidly. Uh, around seven percent a year uh, in in the luxury in the hard luxury segment. However, there are some headwinds because Hong Kong, for instance, which is a, a big hub for for jewels and watches, I mean, has been hit hard by five months of protests. I mean, relentless protests, really. So um, that that's you know one question mark. The other thing is that uh, Tiffany is also still in the middle of restructuring. Um, the new CEO took over in 2017 um, after you know a few bumpy years for for the group, and he hasn't yet finished to turn it around. Um, so, I mean, I think you know the brand is fabulous. It could do probably better within mm-hmm. a larger conglomerate like LVMH than just on its own. All right, there you have it, uh, Lisa. Thank you very much for uh, dialing in. We appreciate it. No problem. And now we turn to debt and politics in Venezuela. Anna, honestly, the story has so many twists and turns, I don't even know where to begin. So let's start with Venezuela and their and its leadership and what's going on there. Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, it's a, it is a really, really fascinating story. So just to start right now in Venezuela, you have Nicolas Maduro, who is the president of Venezuela. However, he is not recognized as the president of Venezuela by most of the world. Most of the world recognizes Juan Guaido, who's the leader of the opposition, as the president of Venezuela. Who was elected, right, in theory? Was he elected or was there a military coup? so So Maduro basically 
had Maduro's most recent election has was basically not considered valid by much of the world. Okay, got it. And and at the time, it's important uh, that the National Assembly, which is like the Congress of Venezuela, had been taken over by the opposition. Okay. And then there were a lot of other things that happened. But so that's part of the reason why right now you essentially have these two different leaders. And while Guaido is recognized, again, by much of the world, he doesn't really have any power to affect change in Venezuela. However, what he does have is the power to affect policy of Sitco. So Sitco is a Texas-based refinery okay. that is owned by PDVSA. PDVSA is the state oil company of Venezuela. And what's important to think about here is that like Venezuelan, Venezuela and PDVSA are kind of the same thing. <laughs> like, right, because right. that is like that is their entire it, like, exactly. well-being. Everything is tied to the only way they have to access dollars. It essentially okay. is their economy. And when you're thinking about PDVSA debt, it's basically the same as thinking about sovereign debt. Okay, so why does Guador, Guaido, <laughs> Guaido, I'm going to butcher his name, why does he have control over Sitco and Maduro doesn't? Basically because the U.S. government said he does. Oh, okay. So right. the U.S. government is recognizing him as the leader right. and they're saying, okay, yes. here's the deal. And this is a U.S.-based refinery. Okay. So that, so that yeah. sort of sets the stage for this. And all that's right. why it's really interesting what happened this week. So... Basically, all of Venezuela and PDVSA debt has defaulted. There was one bond, though, that they were still paying interest in principal on. Okay. PDVSA 2020 bond. The reason they were still paying interest in principal on it was because it is backed by 50.1% of Sitco. So if it goes into default, that means the creditors could go after this asset that is located in the United States. Okay, so they could just head on over to Texas and seize control of Sitco. Yeah, in theory. Basically. basically. Okay. And interestingly, the other 49.9% is owned by Rosneft in Russia, just, just to make it more complicated, right? Okay. So Guaido had actually made the last payment for this bond. He had made, but under protest, <laughs> he was saying, I am paying this, this you know, payment to these creditors. However, I do not think I should pay it, <laughs> but I'm going to because I don't want you to seize the, these assets. Okay. So now what happened last week and this week is that last week we had a ruling from the U.S. government that said that basically no one can seize Sitgo for 90 days. No one, basically, being no like creditors, Venezuela, no creditor, no creditors, no bond holders. You can't do anything with Sitco assets for anything related to Sitco for ninety days. Okay, so wait, let let, let me let, let's back up a, a little bit. Who are the main bondholders here? So you have Ashmore, T. Rowe Price, Blackstone. I think uh, Royal Bank of Canada. Okay, are these are these the types of? Uh, debt issuers who are going to go in and seize an asset? Well, I mean, you do already have a creditors committee okay. that has been formed. Okay. Um, you know, f- for the very reason that, you know, if you are a investor and you've invested other people's money in an asset and that asset goes into default, you, you mean you have to you, try to push for some type of resolution, okay. right? I mean, you, you have to. So th- this isn't necessarily going to become some... Elliot, that's what I was. That's kind of where I was going. Right. It's just like a Paul Singer, yeah, Elliot, or Elliot. But it is really, really tricky, right? And so this is why the United States government basically said, "We're going to give you guys ninety days. 
We know that Guaido is not going to make the payment that was actually due on the 28th, on Monday of this week. They knew Guaido wasn't going to make that. So they said, okay, we're going to give you 90 days to try to figure out how to settle this. Okay. Because honestly, the U.S. government doesn't want to get that involved because it is a private issue and it it doesn't look great (laughs) to have the government stepping in to the U.S. government kind of stepping in there. However, they also don't necessarily want creditors to be seizing the asset that is currently funding the opposition to Nicolas Maduro. And also what Guaido is saying is that you know, like, we're going to need this once Maduro and Chavismo eventually falls. You know, this is going to be really necessary in order to rebuild this country. Because it, it, it is the country. It, it is, is the economy. It's, right? it, I mean, yeah. and this is basically the way that they access dollars. I mean, so so this is why what happened this week is really important. So, again, last week you had the U.S. government step in. This week you had Guaido not make the $913 million payment that was due. And then, to top it all off, you had Guaido go forward with a lawsuit. So basically, he had been threatening to push forward this lawsuit, which said that this debt was invalid. He had been threatening that before the U.S. stepped in. Okay. And a lot of kind of Venezuela watchers thought that because the U.S. stepped in, he wasn't going to go forward with this lawsuit. However, he did. (laughs) So basically, his argument is that This debt is invalid because when the exchange was made, the National Assembly, which was controlled by the opposition, did not approve it. I see. So it goes back to politics. Exactly. And then that becomes a whole other complicated thing because part of the government obviously did approve it. But that part of the government is obviously controlled by Nicolas Maduro. And this is the fact that Guaido went forward suggests that he has a very weak negotiating hand. Okay. Right? Because if if he really thought Nego- but but I mean backing up yeah. negotiating with the creditors. The creditors. And, I and, see. and it makes sense, right? In the sense of why you would have a weak negotiating hand if you kind of think about it, because he, yes, he has the ability to potentially pay out things from Sitco, but he doesn't really run the country. Like, if you're a creditor, why would you necessarily make an agreement with someone to potentially get future oil concessions? But, you know, but that actually brings up a, a much larger question here is if you are the if you're a part of this committee, what are you doing? Are you just like, who do you deal with? Right. Because it seems like, the, yes, in, in one ways, uh, Guaido is legitimized by the U.S., but he hasn't been legitimized by his own country and his own Congress and his own. like. So how does that all kind of play out? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. So you basically have, uh, again, this this committee, which currently Cleary Gottlieb, um, the law firm is advising, and they've really been, you know, kind of working with Guaido, who interestingly is also being advised by Lee Bukheit, who used to be at Cleary Gottlieb. Yeah, <laughs> just to make of course. it more complicated. Yes. Right. Um, Because, again, right now, the only one who's going to be able to pay these creditors is going to be out of Sitco from Guaido. And just to take a step back, just to remind everyone, this is PDVSA debt. This is not Sitco debt. However, Sitco is the collateral that backs it. Got it. So that's why it's like. In theory, Sitco shouldn't have to pay it, but if they don't, then it can get seized. And is is Sitco is it a healthy? Yeah. 
company. It okay, is, yeah. so it's it's doing okay. Exactly. No, it, it, and and that's and that is exactly what the creditors say. They say, look, <laughs> you you clearly have the resources to pay us. So wh- why aren't you paying us? And on the and the reality is, even though they might not have the maybe the greatest moral argument in the world when you look at what's happening in Venezuela, right. their legal argument, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on where you sit, is relatively strong because most people think that the lawsuit that Guaido is pushing forward doesn't really have much of a chance, and that it's it's mostly just another kind of delaying tactic. Yeah. Like he understands there's no way they're getting I mean, I shouldn't say no way. It's incredibly unlikely they get this settled in 90 days or even, you know, or, or even yeah. to the point that they would get it where he would be able to pay out the credit or something. Right. So I think this is just another way to just kind of push, push, push it, delay. Push the, exactly. Push the, push the uh, can down the road. Yeah. If you will. So um, so two two points I'd, or two questions I'd like to ask you before we go. One is um, do you think that the government will uh, extend that 90-day freezing period? You know, it, it's really interesting. I think it depends on, what, honestly, partly what is literally going on in the U.S. Because if, you know, if John Bolton was still there, I'd say, yes, they will probably just keep pushing this. because. Yeah. But he's not. And there is so much that the current Trump administration is dealing with. Honestly, I don't know if they want to get so kind of tied down into this. That's that's partly where I think. So I, I'm kind of like, are they going to extend this? Because the more they do, the more than they really become a player in this. In this whole thing. Right? But on the other hand, you know, just, just to be fair, I mean, as I've said, I think it's unlikely that this is going to be resolved. You do have the issue of, you know, what happens if all of a sudden you have, you know, U.S. or European creditors that are, you know, trying to take over this asset that, you know, in theory later could be used to help the Venezuelan population. And then again, just to complicate everything, you also have Rosneft owning or potentially having made a loan that is backed by the other basically 50 percent of this company. Mm -hmm. You know, so it is a very politically dicey situation. And so it also seems like the key to this is kind of straightening out the Maduro situation. That's that. I mean, uh, that happened. You you know, this is the phrase muddle through has been used to describe Maduro and this government for like six years at this point, or or like at least since 2014. No one knows when this when this administration is going to fall at some point. Obviously, they will because they just simply will run out of any type of funding whatsoever. Yeah. However, as long as the military continues to back Well, that's what I was wondering. Maduro, the the, the mil- military right? still has yes. his... Exactly. As long as they do, they, you know, they're not going to fall, right? And so it, this could last for another five years. This could last for six months. No one knows. Well, that's depressing. <laughs> Thanks, Anna. Yep. All right. I'm Pete Sweeney. I'm here in Hong Kong, and I am speaking to Yuna Galani in Mumbai about an interesting little story that's popped up in the Indian chocolate industry. Fabel has launched a trio of chocolates named Creator, Nurture, and Destroyer that look like they would destroy some people's pocketbooks. They cost more than $6,000 per kilogram. You know, India is a poor country, and this is almost three times the average per capita income for just one kilogram of chocolate. How did this happen and, and what's the play? 
Hi, Pete. Look, this is a really exciting story in some ways. I mean, you know, India's coming of age in the world is sort of symbolized by this chocolate in some ways. You know, Sabel is basically a Indian chocolatier that is trying to establish itself on the global culinary map. And it's not just any chocolatier. It's not like a Cadbury's or a Mondelez. Like, it's doing high-end chocolates. It has chocolate boutiques making handmade pralines. And, you know, in their five-star hotels, it's part of a kind of a, a hotels to tobaccos con- conglomerate. So the idea behind launching this chocolate, which now has the title of the world's most expensive, uh, it's now in the Guinness World Book of Records. The, the idea behind it is really to establish the brand on the culinary map. And I think they have achieved it by doing that. And, and, you know, they've done it without, um, it's quite refreshing, they've managed to do this without any of the gimmicks you might expect. You know, these truffles are not covered in gold leaf, and they've actually taken it quite seriously. You know, they have brought in a Michelin-starred pastry chef from France, Philip Ponticini, if I'm pronouncing it right. And, and he's helped them design these uh, this set of truffles sourced with the finest ingredients around the world, the best single-origin cacaos. And, yeah, I mean, you know, they've just produced uh, something incredible. And how much domestic demand do you think there's going to be for these particular chocolates inside of India itself? So, I mean, they've avoided the gold leaf gimmick, but in another way, this is sort of, you know, this isn't expected well, presumably to the be... price itself is sort of the gimmick, I guess, in this case. Right. They're not planning to stock supermarket shelves with this <laughs> stuff. I mean, these are going to be made-to-order chocolates. So, and I think, you know, I mean, we, we've given the per-kilogram price, which is how they've got into the Guinness World Book of Records, but I think a box would set you back about you know, uh, like a hundred thousand rupees. So it's like, it's a fraction of that because you'd only get 15 truffles in a box, but it's a, um, I I think it's a sort of, it's a way of um, showing the world that India is now making cheeses and wines and chocolates that are amongst uh, the best in the world. And they're doing that at home with homegrown brands, much like we're seeing in the consumer sector, you know, lots of Uh, Homegrown brands are taking on international ones. Now, it's sort of interesting economic moment for India. And I think you wrote about how Fabel is is kind of spreading its bets. They also have cheaper bars that they sell under a different different brand name. But the gap between the haves and have-nots is sort of a political issue, no? I mean, we've seen like these crazy pricings in China, for example, with apartments and stuff or other items that that cater to the ultra-wealthy. How does this play politically to have a, a company that's so clearly playing to the, the very, very wealthy in India? Look, I, I don't think that there is a political problem with this. I think that companies that are making world-class products in India are celebrated. I think certainly in Mumbai, where this chocolate was launched, India's financial capital, this sort of unabashed richness is and unabashed capitalism is quite celebrated. I mean, Mukesh Ambani built his sort of famous $1 billion house, one of the world's most expensive on the most expensive road. And, and you know, these aren't problems. These are, you know, in India, I think this is still seen as something to be celebrated. But this was the, the launch of this chocolate, which which is an impressive feat in itself, did come on the same week that Credit Suisse released their global annual wealth report. And, and you know, that had some interesting trends, and it, which showed that uh, you know, the wealth gap between the haves and have-nots in India is rising. I mean, so, you know, these chocolates are really going to sort of, you know, they'd burn a hole in 
your pocket anywhere in the world. And they're really only catering to India's millionaires. I think which number, I mean, India has about 800,000 millionaires now, like almost 2% of the global total. But the reality is, as you said, it's like sort of three times the average income. And 80% of the population here still has a net total wealth of less than $10,000. The gap between the haves and the have-nots is, is really, really big. And also what we're also seeing is that wealth creation in India uh, with the economic slowdown that the economy is really going through at the moment, which is quite a dramatic slowdown. You know, GDP has fallen from 8% to uh, about 5%. And, you know, wealth creation over the last two decades has, has been pretty good, but uh, now it's really just over 3%. So it's a third of what it's been growing at. And it's too early for India's economy to be slowing down in this dramatic way. And unlike what we're seeing elsewhere in the world, lots of economies in around the world are currently slowing. But India's is not tied into the global economy in the same way. And, you know, it doesn't have huge exports. It doesn't have huge manufacturing. It's pretty self-contained to a large extent. And, and so a lot of the problems that India is having are homegrown. And, and one of the big questions is really how are we going to get out of this rut? And so when you have the launch of this like amazing chocolate uh, sold at this very, very egregious price, you know, it just does leave a bit of a bitter aftertaste in your mouth because, you know, you walk out of that hotel where you've been to the launch of this chocolate and there are people like, you know, living on the streets and, and, and that sort of, and the gap of the wealth gap here is just much more stark than in the most other cities around the world. Sort of a let them eat chocolate moment. Um, well, perhaps we'll be able to afford a kilogram of the destroyer someday. Um, in the meantime, thanks for talking with me, Yuna. Well, that's our show for this week. I would like to thank our guests, Lisa Yuka, Pete Sweeney, and Yuna Galani. And hats off to our producers, Laura Browner, Ross Shoulder, and Freddie Joyner. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check out our other podcast, The Exchange, and wander over to breakingviews.com while you're at it. Don't forget to tune in next week for another edition.